You're listening to sermon audio from the Shore Church, located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Great. Well, great to be here uh, with you this morning. Uh, just a beautiful day outside. Uh, Jordan mentioned I was here one other time, but it was in the midst of uh, only doing live streams, so I haven't had a chance to be uh, with you actually in your presence. And uh, I have been praying for the Shore Church and uh, looking forward to coming today and opening God's word with you. I pastor a church uh, in Surrey, uh, planted that church in 2011 and have a real heart for church plants and for what uh, God does through them. So I do wanna just encourage you and let you know I am praying for the Shore. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, you've been making your way through the book of Ecclesiastes for a number of weeks now. I'm kind of parachuting in to your study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, you finished off chapter 6 last week, this morning. We're going to be in chapter 7 and going to be looking at the first 14 verses of chapter 7. But before I read those verses, I actually want to back up one verse to the final verse, the closing verse of chapter 6. That verse says, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Verse or chapter 6 ends with this question, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? The question of that verse is about what is good for us while we live on this earth or what constitutes the good life on this earth. That question is actually answered in chapter 7, but before we get there, I think it's worth reflecting on some of the answers to that question that fall short. What is the good life? Well, back in chapter 2, that question is explored or was explored through the eyes of King Solomon. He tries hedonism, the pursuit of every pleasure. He tries materialism, the acquisition of every good thing. Workaholism, the pursuit or the undertaking of massive projects, and each time he concludes it is meaningless. It is like a chasing after the wind. I think we all know that the Christian answer to the question, what is the good life or where is the good life to be found, is that it's not going to be found in any of those things, hedonism or materialism or workaholism or any other ism that we might come up with. But I think there's maybe a subtler error when it comes to the answer to that question. So I entitled this message, Your Better Life Now. Now you might recognize that as being very similar to the title of one of the best-selling Christian books of the 21st century. That book is called Your Best Life Now. It was written by Joel Osteen, the smiling pastor of the largest church in America. Here's a sampling of how he presents what the good life looks like. He says, what do you see when you look into your future? Do you see yourself getting stronger, healthier, and happier? Is your life filled with God's blessing, favor, and victory? You must begin to see it if you truly hope for it to come to pass. 
Elsewhere, he says, God is in the multiplication business. It doesn't matter what your need is today. God wants to increase you. God can make you seem bigger than you really are. He can make you look more powerful. He knows how to multiply your influence, your strength, and your talent. So as the title suggests, the basic premise of that book is that God wants you to have your best life now. And your best life, the good life, consists of a life that is free from all hardship and suffering, all financial setbacks. That's what the good life looks like, according to Joel Osteen. But how does that compare with the Bible's definition of the good life? Well, hang on to that even as we read the first 14 verses here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is God's word and this is what it says to us. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the knowledge And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Well, this section of Ecclesiastes that we're looking at this morning starts out by saying that the day of death is better than the day of birth. So right away, we kind of know this is not going to be sort of a happy, clappy kind of passage, right? In fact, just reading the opening few verses of chapter 7 can make us feel like we've stepped into a sort of bizarro world where up is down and forwards is backwards and everything we've assumed to be true about what constitutes the good life gets turned on its head. And yet there's something about these verses that forces us to think about a type of joy that is deeper than the superficial happiness that Vanity Fair trades in. I entitled this message, Your Better Life Now Because this passage uses a series of better thans to make its point. If you've been tracking along through this series, you will find that this chapter maybe has a slightly different feel to it than many of the chapters you've covered so far. It seems more, a lot more like a section from the book of Proverbs, kind of these loose sayings that are are connected somehow. But there is a connection between them. 
Nine times in these verses, it says that this is better than that. So far from being a pointer to despair, this chapter is actually saying that in fact of the the truth that our time on this earth is short, one way of living is better than another. So we're going to look at at all 14 verses, but I, I boiled my message down to six better thans or six better than statements. The first one is simply that substance is better than image. So verse 1 begins by saying, a good name is better than precious ointment. At the most basic level, this verse teaches that it's better to actually be good than to just smell good. It's better to be known for having good character than it is to be known for wearing lots of Old Spice, right? That's the idea here. A good name is better. But actually, this proverb or this saying goes much deeper than that. As I've put it, substance is better than image. And I think this is a really important word in our day because our culture is obsessed with image. Now, this is certainly true on the physical level. We could point to lots of examples that illustrate that. But it's true on a much deeper level as well. You know, if you just take a look at the last decade... There have been lots of high-profile examples of people whose public image was one thing, but their private reality was something completely different. So in the sports world, we could think about someone like Lance Armstrong. His public image, how he was known, was that he was a seven-time Tour de France winner, He was a cancer survivor, he was an author, he was a motivational speaker, he was known as a philanthropist. But the actual substance of his life revealed something completely different. He was a cheater, he was a blood doper, he was a man who essentially forced his teammates to dope as well. He was someone who threatened, harassed, and sued anyone who dared to blow the whistle on what he was up to. In the entertainment world, we could think about someone like Bill Cosby. Cosby's entire career was built around the idea of being a family-friendly comedian. The Cosby Show was the most popular show on TV in the 1980s. The whole thing was built around family values. But in 2014, dozens of women came forward alleging sexual harassment. Cosby was convicted in 2018 of aggravated indecent assault. There was a massive difference between his public image and the substance of his life. Now, those might seem like extreme examples, but it's really not all that uncommon. We often place a greater emphasis, a far greater emphasis on image than we do on substance. And this verse reminds us of that. It says a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, it might help us to remember that scented oils and other fragrances were valuable commodities in biblical times. The proverb here is similar to the one we find in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, where it says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. 
See, far from just being a simple proverb about being good versus smelling good, this verse is driving at what's really important in life. And what's really important in life is the deeper truth about us. And verse one is an interesting verse because the full verse says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now in Hebrew poetry, the second line usually intensifies or completes the thought of the first half of the verse or the first line. And when we read this verse, it's not really clear how that second line completes the thought of the first one. If we didn't know better, we might think that the the preacher had ADD, name, ointment, death, right? I mean, that's just kind of where he always ends up. I do think there's a connection, though, and I think the second half of the verse is driving at the same thing. You see, it is ultimately the day of our death that reveals what was ultimately important to us. Was it image or was it substance? Now, maybe you've heard the story of the two brothers who were well-known around their town for their crooked business dealings, their underworld connections. They were as mean and cold-blooded as you can imagine, and one day that one of the brothers died. The surviving brother wanted to give his dead brother a funeral that was fit for a king. So he called the funeral home, he made all the arrangements, then he called the town's minister and made him an offer. As they say, he couldn't refuse. He said, I'll give you $50,000 to put that new roof on the church if, in eulogizing my brother, you call him a saint. And that minister agreed. The whole town turned out for the funeral. Minister began, the man you see in the coffin was a vile and debauched individual. He was a liar a thief, a deceiver, a manipulator, a reprobate, a hedonist. He destroyed the fortunes, careers, and lives of countless people in this city, some of those who are in this room today. This man did every dirty, rotten thing you can think of, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. See, substance is better than image. Just having the ointment, just having that expensive perfume doesn't cover up a life of corruption. And the question for us is, which one are we focused on? Is it the substance of our lives or the image that we portray? I came across a tweet that said, your Google search history is the real you. How true is that? See, there's a temptation for all of us to pretend to be something we are not. There's a temptation to spend more time and energy working on our image than we do developing our character. And the solution is not to give up, but to make sure we're striving to be people who are more concerned with the substance of our lives than the image we portray. Second better than I want to give you is that a funeral is better than a festival. Now, most of you will have a hard time buying that. But it is essentially the point being made in verses two to four. Those verses, again, say it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. 
Now, we can't read these verses in isolation. The Christian life is a life of joy. And even as you've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, you've seen that joy is commended multiple times. So in chapter five, we read this, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. In chapter eight, we'll come across this verse, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And you know that the New Testament has a lot to say about joy, the fact that we ought to, and we ought to find joy in all circumstances. So these verses are not saying we should go around like Eeyore, just kind of down all the time, dark cloud that follows us. Gary Thomas says this about the dangers of that approach to the faith. He says, when church leaders or when the church teaches a glum faith of responsibility, a faith devoid of joy, when the pulpit treats pleasure like a, some sort of spiritual leprosy, when people of faith speak as though they're anti-sex, anti-humor, anti-fun, anti-anything that brings pleasure, we risk fostering the kind of devotion the Bible shockingly and without reservation rejects. So the Bible is for joy, it is for pleasure. But having said all that, there is tremendous wisdom in these verses that we neglect to our own detriment. Some time ago, I read a book entitled Getting the Blues, What Blues Music Teaches Us About Suffering and Salvation. Sounds like a pretty upbeat book, I know. But in that book, the author makes the point that while the problem in Narnia was that it was always winter but never Christmas, he says the problem in the modern-day evangelical church is that it's always Christmas but never Good Friday. Right, we never talk about suffering. But suffering has much more to teach us. We ought to lean into it. Now when I say a funeral is better than a festival, I don't mean that this is what you should be doing on Friday night instead of getting together with your friends. I simply mean that we need to look at life seriously. We need to remind ourselves that life is short. And these verses have something specific in mind. Verse two says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. So rather than just kind of party away our time or escape the reality by drinking ourselves into oblivion, we need to give sober reflection to the fact that we will all die. Psalm 90 is a psalm written by Moses. In verse 10 of that psalm, he says this. He says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And then in verse 12, he says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. One of the ways we become wise is by learning to number our days. It's by reminding ourselves that we will die. Martin Luther actually paraphrased this verse with, Lord, teach us that we all must die. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever numbered your days. Verse 10 tells us that the length of our days is 70 years or maybe 80 if we have the strength for it. And that's still pretty close to the average lifespan. In case you're wondering, 70 years equals 25,565 days, including leap years. So if you are 40, you've used up almost 15,000 of those days. Bruce Waltke was one of my professors at Regent College, and I had the privilege of hearing him preach on Psalm 90 on the occasion of his 70th birthday. And he said that the first time he taught through this psalm, he decided to number his days. He took those 25,565 days. He subtracted the number of days he had already lived, and he came up with a total. This is what he had left. And then each day during the time he spent with the Lord, he would just cross off another one of those days. And he said this actually gave him a new zest for life. He was aware that as each day passed, he had one day less to live. He said he actually did this for a number of years until the day he told his wife what he was doing. And she said, Bruce, that is really morbid. You should stop it. But a funeral is better than a festival in the sense that going to the house of mourning has a way of clarifying and crystallizing our thinking about life. And I'll just tell you that one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that I go to more than my fair share of funerals. On back-to-back weekends this year in the spring, I presided over two funerals for people under the age of 40. One of those was a husband of a couple that I had married just three years prior. The other one was a young woman engaged to be married, planning on being baptized on Easter Sunday in our church. And those events, that time spent in the house of mourning, had a way of clarifying what's important in a way that a hundred parties never could. So a funeral is better than a festival. A third thing we learn about the better life here is that wounds are better than kisses. This is the message of verses five and six where it says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. I took the heading for this point from Proverbs 27, verse 6, where it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The simple truth of this verse or these verses is that wisdom's rebuke is better than folly's laughter. The wise person is not the one who laughs everything off. In fact, one of the main differences between those who are wise and those who are foolish is how they respond to correction. You probably know the book of Proverbs is devoted to wisdom and how to gain it. But the book of Proverbs tells us the primary way to distinguish between a wise person and a foolish person has to do with how they respond to correction. So here's a sampling from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Or Proverbs 9.8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. 
Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And Proverbs 15, 5 says, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. We could actually just keep piling up the Proverbs that tell us that same thing, that wounds are better than kisses. The truth is still the truth even when it hurts us. Now, the job of a prophet was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And we ought to receive both of those things, both the comfort that comes from the good news of the gospel, but also the affliction that comes from it, the wounds that come from it. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, you, you see that he did this all the time. I mean, he takes this woman who he met at the well, and he offers her a relationship with God. But at the same time, he's going to tell her, look, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And you see that perfect balance of grace and truth in the ministry of Jesus. And the contrast here in Ecclesiastes 7 is between the rebuke of the wise and the song of fools. Verse 7 describes the laughter of fools as the crackling of thorns under a pot. This description comes from the fact that a fire made with thorns will start quite quickly. It'll make lots of noise, but it won't last very long or provide any kind of, or provide the kind of warmth that we actually need. And the point of application for us to, to remember is that we live in an age of superficiality. I mean, we can just amuse ourselves to death. You can amuse yourself with inane YouTube or TikTok videos, but you won't find a lot of wisdom there. One of the values of being part of a church, being in a community group, is that you grow because you experience, you have the experience of teaching and admonishing one another. We need both of those things. That is a, hundred, a thousand times better than the song of fools that we are exposed to most of the day. Wounds are better than kisses. A fourth truth we discover about the better life is that the narrow road is better than any of the alternatives. So verse seven goes on to say, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, it might not be obvious the first time you read it, but what the verse is saying is that there are numerous ways we can be led astray. One of the tests we face is the test of adversity. Oppression drives the, the wise into madness. Now, this chapter has been extolling the virtues of hardship and how suffering has much to teach us, but every time we encounter hardship, we are faced with a test. How will we respond? But there's another type of test that we face. The verse says, oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So if adversity is one of the tests that we face, prosperity is another test we face. And we all have experience with this kind of test. I mean, we've all been faced with decisions where we have to decide between doing the right thing and making a quick buck. And what this verse reminds us is that this is not a small issue. The bribe corrupts the heart, right? It poisons us. What starts out as a small compromise in our lives ends up consuming us. 
It alters the entire direction of our life. This is why we are repeatedly warned about falling prey to sins like covetousness. Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, I would say there's no doubt this morning that some of you are facing the test of adversity right now. Maybe you're dealing with a financial hardship. Maybe there's some other, maybe it's a relational difficulty. Some other temptation is you're facing is causing you to say, maybe I should just give up. Maybe my faith doesn't make any difference. And others of you might be facing the test of prosperity. I mean, you've experienced an extended season of God's blessing in your life, but it hasn't produced a sense of humility or gratitude. And either way, the call to you is to return to the narrow road of discipleship. Fifth thing we discover in this section is that a wide-angle view is better than a narrow one. Listen again to verses 8 to 10. Those verses say, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So there are really two ways that these verses help us understand that a wide-angle view is better than a narrow one. The first is by showing us that patience is better than pride. It says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And then the next verse goes on to warn us about the dangers of anger. And the type of anger it's describing is a particular kind of anger. It's related to the anger that comes from wanting something and wanting it right now. Now, we live in an instant society. We want instant results, instant gratification, even instant authenticity. I I think we all know this, or hopefully we all know this, but the 1980s was sort of the best decade for fashion, right? One of the things I remember from the 1980s, one of the trends that came out back then was stonewashed jeans. And the idea behind stonewashed jeans is that they had been pre-washed with rocks so that they would look and feel like a pair of jeans you had already worn for a long time. And all it cost you was an extra $15. We still see this same thing today. I mean, this is still the the idea. Let's buy something that looks like it's already been worn for a while. Or let's buy a piece of furniture that's been distressed. So it looks like a family heirloom, even though it's brand new. And there's nothing wrong with that when it comes to jeans or to furniture. The problem comes when we want everything in life to have the feel of authenticity right out of the box. This is true of our relationships. I mean, you know, when you see that sweet old couple hand in hand at the beach, right, walking, and we all say, oh man, that's what I want. You know, this couple that's been together 50, 60 years or more. What you have to remember is that it took them a lifetime of experience together to get to that place. 
If you want to have a happy marriage, you have to take a long-term view of things. Same thing is true of your involvement in a church or a community group. You don't have that authenticity instantly. It takes time. If you have an impatient spirit, if you expect everything to just kind of click instantly and have the depth of relationships that actually takes years to foster the moment you walk in the door, you'll be disappointed. You've got to take the long-term view. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Verse 10 then makes the point that a wide-angle view is better than a narrow one in a different way. It says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. So if verse 8 and 9, or verses 8 and 9, caution us about pessimism about the future... You know, when I look at where I am now and what I have now, I'm never going to get there. Verse 10 then cautions us about nostalgia for the past. Some people love to talk about the good old days, the way things used to be. Or even worse, they try to recreate the past. Look, it is great to have fond memories of the past. It's great to look back on some of those experiences and joys and say, oh, remember when. But things change. And this verse says, clearly, it's not wise to dwell on some imaginary golden era of the past and say, oh, that was so much better back then. A wide-angle view is better than a narrow one. Final thing we see in this passage is that wisdom makes everything better. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 say this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. These verses are actually really striking, or they should be striking, in light of everything that has been said in the book of Ecclesiastes up to this point. The book of Ecclesiastes explores the issue of contentment in great deal. And as you read through this book, you could wrongly get the idea that all of the things that it touches on, wealth and respect and family and long life and work, are not valuable at all. But actually, as what the book actually teaches is that while those are good things, they are not ultimate things. And the way we learn to enjoy those things without making them into idols is by wisdom. See, a fool is still a fool, regardless of how much money he might have, because he has the wrong relationship with it. But when we have wisdom, we can enjoy all of the good gifts that God has given to us. So we need to be like King Solomon you remember the story when God came to him and said, well, what do you want? He could have said money or power or fame, but instead he asked for wisdom. And that's what we need to do. That's how we experience the better life, is we operate with God's wisdom. In the New Testament, James says it to us this way. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, when we read that verse, we need to be careful that we don't read that verse the wrong way. Too many people read it like it's a magical thing. Well, look, I need to make a decision, so I'm just going to ask for wisdom, and poof, I've got it. 
It's not what it's saying. That the wisdom we get from God actually comes from a relationship with God. He's the source of wisdom. Proverbs 1 verse 7 is the foundational verse for the book of Proverbs. And there it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, if you've read through the book of Proverbs, then you'll know that that phrase appears many times in the book of Proverbs. In fact, it, it occurs 18 times in the book of Proverbs. It's, it's obviously a key concept. Wisdom comes from God alone. So when we read the book of Proverbs, we shouldn't read it as a, a book of just sort of clever ideas or nice phrases. It's really an invitation to a relationship with God, and that's what this is driving at as well. This is why wisdom gives us an advantage. So here verses 13 and 14, we're gonna end with these verses where it says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And then it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now as you think about those verses, Maybe you can hear echoes, or maybe you can hear echoes of those verses in the New Testament in Philippians chapter four. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says there. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, how is it that we can get to that place where we can say, or we can experience the day of prosperity and be joyful and in the day of adversity still consider that God has given both of those to us. So the better life, the best life, doesn't just consist of all the prosperity, it consists of all of it, and wisdom means that we function in this life in a constant relationship with God. We draw our strength from Him, and it's in Christ that we can do all things. So let me pray as we close. Father, we want to thank you for the wisdom that you give us, this skill to navigate life in all of its complexities, whether it is the stuff that immediately takes us to a place of joy or the stuff that causes pain in our lives. We pray that we would receive all things as being from your hand and that in the midst of all things, uh, we would cling to you. God, I pray for the people of the shore church. I pray that they would experience your rich blessing. You ask us, you tell us that we, if we lack wisdom, we ought to ask for it. And I pray that as they do that, you would grant that request, that you would fill them with your wisdom and with your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from the Shore Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not charge for it. Learn more about the Shore at www.theshorechurch.ca.